Thank you, Mike. Somebody asked me, what's the significance of eating the bread and drinking the cup? The significance is that we have taken Christ into us, that we are one with him. So, lest you be befuddled by that, that's why we do it. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at uh, one of the more interesting accounts in the New Testament of Jesus' ministry. There are two parallel accounts. One is recorded by Matthew in chapter 9 of his gospel. The second one is recorded by Mark in his gospel of chapter 2. We're going to look at the passage in Luke chapter 5 and I'll refer to the other two passages. But I've given you the references in your notes so that you can, in fact, read them on your own and uh, do a comparison. Beginning of verse 17, Luke writes this, one day he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and they said, we have seen remarkable things today. This is a fascinating, fascinating study and it holds a tremendous understanding for us and I, I hope to communicate that to you this morning. And the, the reality is we're going to talk about Jesus' power and his authority over sin. And we've already seen his authority and his power over sickness and disease, over demons. They obey him uh, even over uh, the physical world. Even the wind and the waves obey him. But now we're going to see his authority and his power over sin. And this is our biggest issue. Would you agree? I would suggest to you and that the, the most, most distinctive message of Christianity. Now, Christianity has lots of, lots of doctrines, lots of things in Christianity, but the most distinctive message in Christianity is the reality that sin can be forgiven. 
Now, a lot of times you can get a little, a little blasé about that, or you know, if you've been a Christian a long, long time, you already know that. But we have to understand the impact of the fact that your sin can be given, forgiven. Our communion is a reminder of Jesus and uh, the fact that what he did, what he experienced, was for the forgiveness of our sins. See, that's the heart of the gospel. That people can be freed from sin, but not only sin, they can be freed from the consequences of sin, the effects of sin. This is huge. This is the most important issue that would ever confront a person. People have asked, can, can a person's sins be forgiven, truly forgiven, and forever forgiven? And if so, who is it that we look to? What person or persons uh, can we trust and depend upon uh, for that forgiveness of our sins? Does Buddha forgive sins? No. Does Krishna forgive sins? No. Does Muhammad forgive sins? No, you can go down the, the whole list of, of religious leaders and um, uh, religious personages. Nowhere in that list, if you understand their teachings and their doctrine, do they conf or, uh, uh, forgive sins. You have no confidence whatsoever. There are literally millions and millions and millions and millions of people today who are sincerely religious, but they're still dead in their sins. Their sins are still not forgiven. There's only one person who can forgive sins. Who's that? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And we know that categorically because the Bible tells us. You say, well, yeah, but that's the Bible. Yeah, but if you read and study the Bible, you, you see this amazing continuity in this book, you come away and you have to be utterly convinced of the truth of the testimony of the Bible. We call it God's word. Now, the Christian faith, as I said a moment ago, has many truths, many values, many virtues, each of which has countless applications in our lives as believers. But its supreme, overarching good news is that sinful people can be fully cleansed and they can be brought into eternal fellowship with a holy God. When you catch a glimpse... As, as Isaiah did, you see God, the holy God, and you realize that you are a person of unclean lips living among a people of unclean lips, and you say, woe is me, when you see the gap between his holiness and our sinfulness, you can appreciate the fact that there is now access to him and that you can have fellowship with an eternal and holy God because of Jesus and what he's done for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, the setting of our text this morning is in the city of Capernaum. Jesus, Mark tells us in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 39, Mark tells us that Jesus has been on a preaching tour throughout Galilee and going around the Sea of Galilee and the various districts that surround that sea. He's been on this long preaching tour. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel, Matthew tells us that Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town, presumably, again, Capernaum, which has become his new base of operations since he was rejected back in Nazareth. Now, if you read Matthew's gospel, if you back up into chapter 8, he was preaching up in the area of the Gadarenes, 
And this is in the area of the Decapolis. These are the ten Gentile cities that he was ministering in. And uh, he has this particular uh, occurrence happen. He's, he meets two demon-possessed men. Do you remember that? And these are very, very fierce guys, and no one can pass, and they're terrorizing everybody. And Jesus casts the demons out of these two demonized men. Now, when he casts the demons out, where do the demons go? Where does he cast the demons into? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, a herd of pigs, right? Now, remember, this is a Gentile area, and so no doubt these were, these were pigs that were being uh, raised for commercial purposes. So when he does that, then what do the pigs do? They run off a cliff and they're all dead. Now, do they... Do the people of the Decapolis, or do the people of the Gadarenes, do they say, wow, Jesus, awesome, you saved these two men. Stay with us. No. Matthew records, they said, get out of here, don't ever come back. And that's when you read the next chapter, chapter 9 of Matthew. He says, Jesus got in a boat, <laughs> crossed over to the other side. He came back to Capernaum after being rejected up there. Now, in keeping up with his pattern of ministry, what is Jesus' pattern of ministry? What do we see him doing most? What's the most important thing that he does? He preaches and he teaches. He preaches and he teaches. He preaches and he teaches. So in keeping up with that pattern of ministry, Luke describes him as teaching. Now, he's not teaching in a synagogue, but he's teaching in a house. According to Mark's account, Mark said this house was crowded with people. A, a large crowd of people were there. So the house had to be fairly large. We don't know whose house it was, very possibly Peter's. We don't know for sure. But there's a huge crowd that had gathered. They're filling the house and they're crowding outside. You can't even get access to the house. Now Luke focuses his attention on two particular groups of people. Who does he focus his attention on? the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, this is significant. They, Luke says that they were sitting there. Now, the Pharisees, if most of you are aware, were one of four major Jewish sects, S-E-C-T-S. <laughs> there were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were the, were the group who were the, the ascetics, and they really, really were separate from everything. The Zealots were the more politically oriented. Uh, the Sadducees were very, very liberal in their theology. They were uh, hardly spiritual at all. And, of course, the Pharisees were the more conservative and much more uh, attuned to the Scriptures, to the Old Testament. The word Pharisee, the name Pharisee, came from uh, the Hebrew verb meaning to separate. So they were described as the separated ones. And they would really would separate themselves and stand aloof and at some distance from the populace, from the average everyday Jew. So they were, um, they were something else. And uh, they were uh, very, very zealous for the Mosaic Law. But not only for the Mosaic Law, they were very, very zealous for the traditions that they added to the law. How many remember the movie um, Fiddler on the Roof? Or the play or the book or whatever. You remember, uh, especially in the movie, you hear the song, Tradition, you know? And uh, this is what it's all about. Uh, 
the Pharisees added layers and layers and layers of traditions or rules, rituals, onto the Mosaic law. You can hardly recognize the law because of what they had done. And ironically, it was because of their zeal for the law that the Pharisees became focused on rituals. They became focused on externally keeping the law. They, they abandoned true religion of the heart for mere outward behavior and ritual. And this would cause Jesus, and when you read the Gospels, you see this, especially in Matthew's Gospel, this would cause Jesus to scathingly denounce their pseudo-spirituality and their hypocrisy. Uh, he would call them, among other things, blind guides. He denounced them as religious talkers only. He would denounce them as place seekers, title seekers, hypocrites. And if you go to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 23, that's a chapter when he just gives it to them and he pronounces seven woes on them. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And, uh, and it's just water off their back, if you will. They don't take to heart uh, what he's saying to them. Now, the teachers of the law, the second group that Luke focused on, the teachers of the law were the professional scholars of the day. And they were the ones who specialized in the interpretation of the law and as well the application. And the Pharisees leaned heavily on the teachers of the law to give them the, the interpretations and as well the applications. And so now the Pharisees would actually make the, all the applications because of what the teachers of the law told them. And uh, many members, by the way, of the teachers of the law would be members of the party of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law that were present, they come from all over Israel. They're an investigative committee. They're not only there from, from, uh, uh, from Galilee, but they're also from Judea and as far away as Jerusalem. So they're there to investigate Jesus. This testifies, I think, to the level of concern that the Jewish religious establishment had about Jesus. After all, he's growing in popularity. Now you remember from John's gospel, Jesus' very first act in his Judean ministry when he was down in Jerusalem. What was the very first thing that Jesus did when he came into the temple in Jerusalem? Do you remember? Did he upset things? Oh, big time. Now remember, the, 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 the uh, uh, commercial aspect of what went on in the temple courts, and especially in the court of the Gentiles, this was under, the, under the, uh, the leadership of the Sadducees. They were the ones who controlled the temple business operations, the money changers, the merchants. So Jesus comes in and absolutely overturns them, chases them out, slings the whip and so forth, not exactly designed to win friends and influence people among the Sadducees. Would you agree? So the Sadducees are not happy with them. And uh, they, along with the Pharisees, were watching with growing alarm and growing jealousy as Jesus' ministry of preaching and teaching and healing was drawing greater and greater crowds in Judea and as well in Galilee. So their, their influence is diminishing. And for them, it's all about power and control and money. And so their influence is diminishing. And as well, they see that the political stability in Israel will be unsettled by this new rabbi who's creating so much of a stir and Rome might get upset. 
So there's lots at stake for them. So they're very, very, very concerned. So they dog his heels. They dog his steps. They're looking for something for which they could indict him. The incident here in this text, as we've read it, in this account, would provide these hostile visitors with an unforgettable and undeniable experience and a formidable challenge to their very own theology. This is a rich, rich passage and holds much application for us. Notice, Luke says that this investigative committee, verse 17, they were what? They were sitting there. Now, do you think they were sitting there with rapt attention? They were hanging on every word that Jesus says? Or might they be sitting there like this? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You know, I think you'd agree with me. There are always those who just sit there. There are going to always be those who just sit there. Always who are just spectators, never really learning, never really listening. Now, they're listening, but they're not learning. They're not going to be involved with Jesus in his ministry. And the challenge for us is, is that we, we, don't not, we, we don't be just spectators. Is we come, we listen, we learn, because we want to be more involved. There are always going to be those who are critical, those who set themselves up, themselves. They know best. They know what's right. They are censorious, they're judgmental, they're critical of what is said, what is taught, what the preacher or the teacher says, does. They listen, they watch to make sure that nothing goes outside the boundaries of what they think is best. And if it is, they begin to criticize, they begin to judge. So there's always going to be those who just, quite frankly, sit there. Now Luke also notes that the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. I think that's, in, that's curious why he phrases it that way. The power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. And I think it, what, it, what he's saying is a reminder that Jesus had set aside his independent use of his divine power and he ministered in submission to his heavenly father and he ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's presence was there, power was available to him, he could draw on and uh, he would not draw on it just unilaterally by himself. Reminds us of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he says, speaking of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So though he was God, he didn't exert and hold on to his godly prerogatives and powers and abilities, but he, what, he emptied himself, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he lives as a man, just as you and I live as, as simply as human beings. He's fully God, but he lives as a human being, dependent on the Holy Spirit in submission to his Father. The very same thing we do. Isn't that true? We live in submission to our Heavenly Father, and we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. So it's an interesting note that Luke includes there. Now, Luke says that while Jesus is teaching that some men arrive carrying a paralytic on a mat. 
Mark, in his gospel notes, it's four men carrying this paralytic on a mat. Now, he was, no doubt, one of countless, countless people with physical problems who would seek Jesus out wherever he went. So wherever Jesus is going, the sick, the lame, the blind, whoever could get to him would try to get to him because his reputation was spreading. Jesus would heal you. Jesus had this power. He, he could restore you. And so this man also would no doubt want to get to Jesus. Now, he has a problem. What's his problem? He's paralyzed. Would it be frustrating to you if Jesus is in town, you know he's there, if you could just get to him, but you're paralyzed, you can't get to him? Would that be frustrating? Absolutely. But he has four very loyal and very resourceful friends to help him. Isn't this great? Now, we're, we're only told that he was paralyzed. We're not told why he was paralyzed, whether it was congenital or the result of disease or the result of uh, some injury. We're just told simply that he was paralyzed. Now, unlike lepers, and Jeff talked to you about lepers last time, unlike lepers, paralyzed people were not ostracized from society. So if you were a leper and you were out in public and you were walking down a street and some people were coming the opposite direction, you were obligated to alert them to the fact that you were there and that you were a leper. What, do, what would you have to say? You'd have to call out to them, unclean. you have to warn them, unclean, unclean. It's like some of you come up the stairs and you're really sick, and so rather than shake your hand, you say, unclean, unclean. <laughs> so the paralyzed were not ostracized from society like a leper. However, they were stigmatized. And they were stigmatized by their condition because it was thought amongst many Jews that all these disabilities were seen as God's punishment for their sin. Now, not much has changed, huh? A lot of people today look at see, people who have problems, disabilities, and, and chronic illnesses, and they, they think, maybe, maybe there's some sin in your life. It's not much different. If you go back to John's Gospel in chapter 9 of John's Gospel, you remember Jesus is, is walking along with his disciples and they come upon this man who John says was born blind and his disciples ask him, uh, Master, why is this man blind? Did he sin? Like you can sin in the womb, right? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says what? Neither, neither. So the, the thinking of the day was that people who had these disabilities, these maladies, these chronic diseases, they were the result of sin. So they were stigmatized that way. Now, there is a connection between sin and sickness. There is a connection. Think with me. The entrance of sin into this world, into God's creation... When sin came in, it brought corruption and death with it, didn't it? How did sin get into this world? Through one man. Who is that man? Adam. We see it in the book of Genesis. We see it in, in the book of Romans in chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says that, that sin entered in through one man, through that man Adam. And when sin entered into the world, it brought its buddy death with it. 
And the only way of reversing this worldwide phenomenon is to have the sin problem corrected. So all the injustice, all the disease, all the, all the brokenness, death, it's caused by sin. This, this, this force, this evil force, this power that has entered in. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's rebellion at its very, very foundation. It's an attitude. And the only way for this world to have to be, have this, this condition reversed is to have the sin problem corrected. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. Now, if you recall, God, God speaks to Israel, and Israel is an example to us. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that we should look to them, we should learn from, from the Israelites. So you read the Old Testament, you read about them, you read about their decisions and their choices, and you see the consequences. So we want to learn from them. So God had promised Israel that he would bring healing to them if they, in fact, repented of their sin and sought forgiveness. There's a famous verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Most of you probably know this verse practically by heart. God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and what? And heal their land. So God makes a connection between forgiveness of sin. Sin causes problems. Forgiveness brings healing. You see? Now we understand this in our own interpersonal relationships. When we sin against one another, there are problems, there's distance in the relationship, there's grief and sorrow and pain and all that sort of thing. And only when there is forgiveness can there be a reversal of those effects. Isn't that true? So we understand that dynamic. So while Individual sin is usually not the direct cause of a person's sickness. Again, I refer you to John's gospel in The Man Born Blind. At the heart of humanity's problem is sin. That is our huge problem, sin. Now, there are situations in which people, because of their sin, will directly suffer. Isn't that true? I mean, the law of cause and effect. You do something really stupid, you're gonna, there's going to be an effect, isn't there? I mean, if, you, if you're constantly drinking uh, or if you're smoking or you're eating stuff that's unhealthy continually, your diet is bad, are you going to probably suffer physiologically from that? Absolutely. So we, so we know there's a connection between some of our behavior and the effect in our life. Now, Jesus' healing ministry confirmed something. It confirmed his authority to announce the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus came preaching, he said, repent because the kingdom of God is what? It's at hand. It's here. Now, he could say that all day long. It wouldn't make any difference to people. They'd just say, well, okay, well, how do we know the kingdom of God is at hand? They could know because now they see a beginning of the reversal of the effects of sin. And they see that through his what? Ministry. His healing ministry. Are you with me? Very, very important to understand. And healing, when he heals people, that confirms that forgiveness of sin accompanies the arrival of the kingdom of God. Because if he can heal, then he must then be reversing something, and something's going on here in that unseen realm. 
once sin is forgiven and redemption has occurred, all sickness and all death will ultimately be abolished. That is our hope, isn't it? One day, the kingdom of God is broken in. The kingdom is here, but it's not yet here fully. But one day it will be, and all, all sickness and death will be ultimately abolished. Let me read to you uh, from Isaiah chapter 25. He will swallow up death forever. Isn't that great news? The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Now, in a sense, you see that reflected in our passage in Luke's gospel because at the end of the passage, they're all rejoicing because they're realizing something of the truth of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, here are these four guys. They've arrived at the house where Jesus is preaching the word and the paralyzed man's friends can't get him in the house. Why can't they get him in the house? Yeah, there's a crowd. There's this huge crowd and no one is going to move aside. The crowd forms this barrier both with their bodies and, may I suggest, with their hearts. Can you imagine here four guys with a guy on a, on a stretcher and they get up to the house, they can't get in, and they say, excuse me, excuse me, can we get our friend in to see Jesus? Get out of here, leave me alone. I don't want to give up my space. It's kind of like Christians in the parking. <laughs> oh, no, 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 you take the better parking place. No, 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 you take it. They can't get him in the front door to get them to Jesus. But fortunately, these four guys, these four friends of his, are determined and they are resourceful. Don't you love this? So unable to gain access to Jesus through the door, what do they do? Somebody in that group says, you know, we, there's got to be a way to get to him. There's got to be a way we can get to Jesus. Now, we don't know if it's the paralyzed guy himself. Take me up on the roof and dig through the roof. Or one or some combination of these guys. But somebody gets the idea, let's kick him up on the roof and let's dig through the roof. Would you think of that? Let's dig through the roof, make a big hole in the sky's roof. I'm sure the owner of the house was appreciative of that. And let's lower him down. You know, I, I think these friends are a great example to us. Think with me for a second. Do you know people who are spiritually sick and spiritually disabled? Do you? Do you know people who just are, are just absolutely helpless spiritually? Write their names down. Write three names down right now in your notes. Just write three names down of somebody, some three people you know who are spiritually sick and spiritually disabled. Imagine yourself with this person on the stretcher. 
Are we obsessed with the mission of getting this person to Jesus? I mean, obsessed with it. I'm suggesting to you that these four guys were obsessed with getting their partner, their friend, to Jesus. They go up on the roof and they're going to dig through the roof. Do we cling to these people who are, in fact, helpless and hopeless until we can get them to him? Do we acknowledge Jesus' power to help beyond any question? If I can just get them to Jesus. If I can just get them to Jesus. And do we persist? Do we persist and persevere until we can get them to him? How creative and how resourceful is God, do you think? I've got a whole raft of people in my life who are, not, who are not saved. And I'm always praying and thinking, God, how can I get this person? How can I get their attention? How will they listen to me? How can I get them to you? I'm always praying. I'm always asking for wisdom and insight. I'm always trying things to get them to Jesus. I want to suggest to you, we should be persistent. You may get rebuffed. You may get mocked. But you, you know the need better than they know the need. And you know the solution to the need is Jesus. And certainly not everybody's going to come. But I, I want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't give up. Pray. God, give me, give me a way to do this. Show me how to dig through some kind of roof to get them to Jesus. Now, you and I, you and I cannot save our friends. We cannot save our family members. Uh, no person can forgive another person's sins in the fullest sense and uh, heal that person, but we can bring people to Jesus for forgiveness, for salvation, for deliverance. We can. The question is, will we? Are we that committed and persistent? Now, can you imagine what went through the minds of the people sitting in that room, listening to Jesus preach, and all of a sudden, dust and dirt and stuff starts coming down in front of them? And then they see this huge hole being opened up in the, in the roof. And all of a sudden, this man being lowered down on a stretcher in front of Jesus. Would you say that that was a dramatic moment? Yeah, absolutely. So here's the guy lowered right down in front of Jesus. Now, there's no record in either of the accounts that the paralyzed man or his friends said anything to Jesus. The need of healing was self-evident, wasn't it? Here's a guy, he's on a stretcher. He's right in front of Jesus. Do you think the room might be hushed? <gasps> What's Jesus going to do? What's Jesus going to say? What's going to happen next? Just imagine the picture. Well, look at verse 20 with me. Jesus says something. And what he says was unexpected and it was shocking. Friend, your sins are... He doesn't even know the guy. Well, he does, but... <laughs> Friend, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I want to come back to that for a second. But the phrase just prior to that, Luke says, when he saw their... what? faith he saw their faith the faith of the friends as well as presumably the paralytic Jesus saw a faith that believed 
He saw a faith that persisted against all kinds of obstacles. A faith that focused on Jesus himself. That he and he alone is the answer to the needs of this man. In fact, he and he alone is the answer to the needs of this world. Isn't that true? What the world needs now is what? Jesus. Jesus. So Jesus recognizes that their bold action of getting through this roof, I mean, you have to appreciate this. He sees that and recognizes it as an expression of their faith. They clearly believe that Jesus had the power to heal. But Jesus doesn't heal the guy right away, does he? No, because Jesus addressed first the more significant issue of the man's need for what? Forgiveness. This helps us understand God's priority of things. Again, in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew's account, a little bit different from Luke's, he has Jesus saying this, Take heart, son. Or more literally, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, no doubt... This man, this paralytic, shaken with grief and fear because of his sins, wanted healing. But more important, Jesus knew that he needed what first? Forgiveness. This is, a, this is very, very important. Jesus is in effect saying to him, don't be afraid because you no longer have anything to be afraid of. You don't need to be afraid of God's wrath. See, it was not the man's, not that the man's fears had been, had not been real or well founded. He did have a reason to be fearful. An unrepentant sinner is separated from God and under divine judgment. Everybody knows that. People know that. Even people who say they don't believe in God, underneath the surface, I promise you, there is a dread they would rather not think about or talk about or have addressed in their life. What happens to me at death? What's going to happen? Everybody, everybody knows there's a God. Paul says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Everybody knows there's a God. Proverbs says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Why? Because it's so doggone obvious. God has revealed himself to every single person. Everybody knows. And the, the problem is people don't want to deal with it because they know they're sinners, they know they're guilty for a holy God, and they know they're under God's judgment. So this man, no doubt, was fearful. Jesus knew it. And when he repents in faith, now he has no reason to fear because he's no longer under God's judgment. So knowing and seeing the paralytic's faith, Jesus said to him, take heart, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine that guy finally exhaling? <sighs> My sins are forgiven. Now again, you have to understand, against the backdrop of Judaism, they had to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And on the Day of Atonement, they had to offer this big sacrifice. But they're never, they have never had any, any hope of, of permanent forgiveness. And Jesus says, your sins have been forgiven, period. Wow. Forgiveness 
is both our greatest need and God's most important gift. That's his most important gift. God, if you never give me one more thing, you have given me the greatest thing I could ever ask for. You have forgiven me of my sins. And forgiveness is the only means for blessing. Blessing in this life and eternal life in heaven. As long as I'm living in sin, as long as my sins are, are not forgiven, as long as I know I'm guilty, I cannot live a blessed life. I'm never at peace. I have no real joy. Does that make sense? And certainly I have no, no hope for heaven. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, came into the world to save his people from their sins. You cannot ever diminish that. He came into this world to save us from our sins. And the Bible says, through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 10. Here's Peter. He's preaching at Cornelius' house, the Gentile. And he says, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We celebrate, we remember, we praise him, we thank him because in him and through him only we have the forgiveness of our sins. How many are thankful for that? Oh man, forgiveness is, is the distinctive message of our Christian proclamation. Forgiveness is the distinctive message of God. Again and again and again, you read throughout the scriptures, the scriptures describe him as a forgiving God. In the book of Nehemiah, when, they, when the Jews are confessing their sins, they acknowledge him as you're a forgiving God. David talks about in, uh, in uh, Psalm 103, David talks about the extensiveness of God's forgiveness. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isn't that beautiful? What a picture. He's removed those transgressions from us. Now, aware that the paralytic had genuine penitent faith, Jesus takes the authority to extend full and permanent forgiveness to him. Forgiving the man's sins, this is important, forgiving the man's sins was far more important than healing him. Think about that for a second. Forgiving his sins was far more important than healing him. Why? Because a sound body assures life only for a few years. But a sound soul assures life for eternity. So Jesus, from Jesus' vantage point, the priority is first forgiveness. And by first forgiving the man's sins, Jesus would teach the most important thing in a person's life the most important thing in a person's life is to seek what? Forgiveness, that's right. Before anything else. Before anything else. He wants us to live with him eternally. In fact, he tells us, he says, I go away to prepare a place for you. I want where I'm going to be, you, I want you there with me. He wants us to live with him eternally. And he must prepare us and equip us and enable us so that we can live with him eternally, not just for a short time here on earth. 1 John 1, 9. I love this verse. John says, if we confess our sins, 
If we come forward, if we confess them, he is what? Faithful and he is just to forgive us and also to do what? Cleanse us of all the unrighteous, all the attendant stuff that comes along with the sin. Cleanses us. Now notice, please, in our account. When Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Does Jesus accuse the man of his past sins? Does Jesus say, now before I forgive you, let me recount your sins. Does he keep a record of wrongs? Do we? Tragically. Tragically, we keep a record. Have you ever heard this or maybe even said it? You always do that. How many of that's your favorite thing to hear? Of course. Steve, thank you. <laughs> Does Jesus find fault with the man? Well, I'm not sure you're ready yet. Does Jesus begrudge him his healing? No. Does Jesus hesitate in forgiving him? Doesn't say, well, I don't know. I don't know if you're ready for this. No, he does none of that stuff. None of that stuff that we do does Jesus do. How many are thankful that he's working in us to make us more like him? That's right. Again, I think another important point to remember and to note is that there are many people who are not going to receive the message of salvation. Why are so many people not going to receive the message of salvation? Because God's not sending his angels from heaven to announce it? Why are people not going to hear the message of salvation, do you suppose? Because who should be the stretcher bearers? We. It's our job. Remember Jesus said, the Great Commission, as you go on your way, make disciples. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Tell people. This is our great privilege. Are the Buddhists going to tell them about forgiveness of sins? No. No, they're going to say forgiveness of sin is, is a figment of your imagination. There's no such thing. How about the Hindus? How about the Mormons? Jehovah's Witnesses. You get on the whole list of people. The Maharishi Michi Mushi. No, none of these people are going to talk to people about the forgiveness of their sins. They cannot offer that to them because they know nothing of it. We're the only ones. And I submit to you, there are going to be lots and lots of people, there are lots and lots of people today, who will not hear the message of salvation. Because quite frankly, the church is not taking the message out there. I love it when, when people argue with me about God being good and merciful and gracious and compassionate. And they say, well, if God is so good and if he's, if he's love and, and, and he wants everybody saved, how come, what, what about all those people who never, ever, in, in some deepest, darkest, aboriginal jungle, never hear the name of Jesus? So what about them? Do you really care? Do you really care about those people? Because I know they don't. It's a red herring argument. Do you really care? Because if you really care, get saved, I'll train you and send you to tell them. (laughs) 
Church, there are paralyzed people, immobilized by sin, immobilized by the things of this world that have a hold on them. They're paralyzed, immobilized by prejudice, by indifference, and they will never, ever hear these words, friend, your sins are forgiven, unless we assist them to come to Jesus. One of our greatest privileges is to share the good news with people. It's not just we just should be good moral people. Our greatest, greatest privilege is to share good news with other people who may never hear it unless we tell them. Are you with me? Now, the confrontation. This is important. Here are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're hearing Jesus. They've just heard him say, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, do they rejoice at this knowledge? Or rather, are they appalled and outraged that Jesus presumed to forgive the paralytic sins? What do you think? Oh, yeah, they don't like this. Remember, they're sitting there like this. They're waiting for any opportunity to indict Jesus. And now, Luke says, they begin to think to themselves. Now, what are they thinking to themselves? Who is this fellow, look at verse 21, who speaks blasphemy, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they're, they're absolutely correct in their assessment that no one can forgive sins in the fullest sense so that the sinner is cleansed, righteous, and never again guilty or condemned. Isn't that beautiful? No one can do that but who? God alone. They're absolutely correct. Only God, as lawgiver and judge, can forgive sin in that eternal way, since all sin is ultimately against whom? It's against him. Remember David in Psalm 51? David says, and this is the context of the of, the, of the, 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 the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, the conspiracy, all of this. And David says very simply, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All he could see was that he had sinned against God. But the Pharisees' characterization of Jesus as this fellow who speaks blasphemy wrongly assumed that he was merely a man, not God incarnate. This is a turning point. By claiming the authority to forgive sins, Jesus was either God or what? A blasphemer. There's no middle ground. If you stand there and you say, your sins are forgiven... On what authority do this? Either you are God or you are, in fact, a blasphemer. There's no middle ground. Jesus could not have been merely a good man. He could not have been a true prophet or even a teacher of morality and ethics if he were a blasphemer of God. You just can't, the two don't go together. Blasphemy in the Jewish world was the most heinous crime because it was a direct affront to the person of God. They would not even mention God's name when they would read the scriptures. Every time they would come across God's name, they would say, the name, for fear that they may misuse his name, and that be an affront towards God. 
But the Jews defined three levels of blasphemy. The first level, one would blaspheme God simply by speaking evil of his law. And this is what the Apostle Paul was accused of doing in his trial that's recorded in Acts chapter 21. Secondly, a more serious form of blasphemy was to slander, speak evil of, or curse God himself. But the most heinous and the ultimate form of blasphemy was to assume the rights and the prerogatives of God to usurp the role of God and act as if one were God. And this this is the third and most heinous form of blasphemy, and this is what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would accuse Jesus of doing. Now, Jesus knows what they're thinking. Does he know what we think? Yeah, right. Don't you love it when, when people say, I know what you're thinking. How can you possibly know what I'm thinking unless you're thinking the same things? Don't we project onto people? He knows what they're thinking. Only God really knows the heart of a person. David, in preparing his son Solomon for the throne, in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, says this. The Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. Only God knows truly what our thoughts are, what our motives are. We don't know. We don't know. So unmasking now, Jesus unmasking their spoken, unspoken thoughts, he escalates this confrontation. Now things are going to really heat up here. He escalates the confrontation, and Jesus challenges them with a question. Look at verse 22 and 23. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now he's going to challenge them with this question. Obviously, both are impossible for a mere man to do, to forgive sins or to say, get up and walk. But that was not the question that Jesus asked. What question did Jesus ask? Which is easier to say? It's easy to quickly pass over that. That's a significant question. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? What do you think? Does Jesus need a convincing reality? Yeah. So which is easier to say as a convincing reality? Now they all knew that only God can forgive sin, which as we have already said, is the root cause of all sickness, all disease. The end result of salvation will not be judgment. No, it will be glorification. Church, when you and I will finally be freed from all sin's consequences and all sin's effects, both in the inner and the outer man forever. That is the end result of salvation. We will have perfect souls, free from sin, we'll have glorified bodies, free from disease and free from death. Now, since this would require forgiveness of all sins, if we're to be free, it would require forgiveness of all sin. Truly the Messiah, God incarnate, had to demonstrate power to remove sin's consequences in the physical world. 
Now, here's the guy's paralyzed. This is a visible consequence of sin's power in the visible world. Are you with me? So he's got to be able to demonstrate power to do that. And that would be proof that he could overpower the effects of sin, this disease state, implying forgiveness. Now, he's about to do both. So the answer to Jesus' question is it would have been easier to say to the paralytic, what? What's easier to say to him? Your sins are forgiven. Yeah, why? Because there's no way to empirically uh, confirm or deny it. Your sins are forgiven. How do I know? I appreciate you saying it to me, but how do I know? It's easier to say that, isn't it? But on the other hand, it would be obvious to all whether or not the paralytic actually got up and walked. Jesus chose to do the obvious miracle of physical healing so that they might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Remember the connection between sin and disease, sin and sickness. So turning to the man lying on his mat, Jesus says, I tell you, get up, Take your mat and go home. Wow. Notice Jesus doesn't say, in Jesus' name. <laughs> Rise up. He doesn't do a dance. Not some big spectacular shaking. He's not, oh, come on, get up. Take your mat and go home. <laughs> wow. It's that easy. And what happened? The guy's sitting there, I can't get up. It's too hard. You just don't understand how hard it is. I just can't get up. I can't do this. I can't make it. I just can't do it. What happened? He got up. He was completely, instantaneously healed. No lingering effects. He didn't have to go to physical therapy. He didn't have to go to rehab. No gradual healing. Verse 25. The paralytic immediately stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. I want to suggest to you he went home praising God, not only because of his physical healing, he went home praising God much more so because his sins had been forgiven. Oh, hallelujah. So Jesus connects his power over the effects of sin with his authority over sin's guilt. The one who healed necessarily could forgive. And verse 26 tells us that everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. The crowd praises God, recognizes what they have seen, wonderful and amazing things through Jesus. The ability of this paralyzed man to resume his walk of life Think about this. Is a picture 
of what Jesus does when he saves. We can resume our walk of life. His message is a liberating message. A liberating message. Let me remind you of his words from earlier. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what we get to do, church. We get to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and to see people set free, walking in their new life. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you again. We love you this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your purpose. Thank you for your forgiveness that we can have life and no longer live under guilt and condemnation and judgment. But Lord, be set free. Lord, make us bold. Give us new eyes to see and stir us up, Lord, to take this great message of salvation, each one of us, to people throughout the week, just to announce good news, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Father, you said that we have freely received, that we should freely give. If we've been trusted with this stewardship, that we should be found faithful in that trust. God, strengthen us, I pray. Help us to understand more and more what your will is for us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen, church?